Here we are. Welcome to Office Hours. Well, I'm Mike Diamond. I am joined by my very dear friend, Michael Unbroken. Mikey, how are uh, you today? Man, I'm amazing, brother. It's a pleasure to be here with you, my friend. Favorite day of the week here our Wednesday. And we're missing our, our, our man, Mr. Milsa, who apparently didn't know how to catch a flight on time. <laughs> but we are with the incredible and the beautiful. Now, let me get this right. It's Marcella Herrera, correct? Close. Maricela with an I. Maricela. Herrera. I'm sorry. All right. Herrera. I apologize. I always no have worries. to ask. And I've got an accent as well from Australia, so I mess up a lot of things. I say stuff and I'm like, what is he even saying? But we're here to... We're here to celebrate you today and talk about what you do as the CEO of Elevate Network. So why don't you get us going and explain to the incredible people watching and to Mike and I what uh, you do at Elevate. Awesome. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Mike and Michael, for being so nice as to um, be here with me. I know David uh, had a little a little, a little <laughs> issue up. with his flight. Um Elevate Network is the largest community of women at work. Basically, what we do is, can we make space for women to get together to help each other out and get more women into leadership positions? A lot of the times, we are kind of feeling siloed or alone when we're dealing with work. And can we have spaces where we can come together, talk about the good, the bad, the ugly that's going on with our businesses, with our daily jobs, with our life, and then find that support, find that advice, find those connections that can open the doors for us to continue to um, progress with and find success, what, however we define that. Um, so that's what we do. It's a pretty large community. We have around 200,000 members around the world, um, mainly based in the U.S., but we do have some extremely active chapters like Dubai and Madrid and other places of the world. That's absolutely incredible. You know, one of the things that I think about, and I've been in leadership since I was 18 years old, um, and as you scale up leaderships and look at life through the scope of being an entrepreneur, business owner, executive, you find it there are very few females at the top. Um, as we move forward, obviously, inclusion is a huge part of that. And I think that we're getting to this place now where many people are recognizing the importance of giving people fair opportunity. And as a person of color, obviously, that's something that impacts me, not in the same guise, but something I think about frequently. One of the big reasons that I, I even started becoming entrepreneurs because like I just didn't see opportunity in corporate America being six foot four biracial and tattooed. So as you're creating and supporting these these women, what what is the one thing that you think is the the strongest cornerstone to the success that you've been able to build while empowering and educating and giving women a platform in Elevate? Thanks, Michael. Actually, it's interesting how you framed your story, you know, and, and why you became on the on, an entrepreneur. And we hear that a lot from women because women and minorities tend to be left out in the promotion uh, conversation. For me, I'm not a six foot two biracial woman, but I am a five foot two Latino woman. Uh, <laughs> and it's 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 hard. And what we hear from women is, you know, we can't I can't do it at this company. I don't feel like I belong. I don't feel like I'm being taken seriously. I'm not getting promoted. On the other hand, we hear from people, well, she wants to have kids or, well, she's going to take a break, which is unfair and unrealistic. To be honest, most women leave their jobs yeah. because of money, because they're not getting paid enough. The problem on the female side is 
when you want to go out and become an entrepreneur, only 2% of women-owned businesses reach a million-dollar mark. 86% end up around being $100,000 a year. So basically, a woman is just taking her job and exchanging it for starting her own business, bringing all that pressure, but taking her salary home, basically. Um, so what we want to do is make sure that we are not leaving money on the table and women can stay in the, their jobs and continue to not only become higher up and more of leaders within their organization, but then change the culture within that. The biggest thing really has been finding mentors and sponsors, particularly sponsors, because a mentor can tell you what to do, can help you out. But a sponsor is the one that's going to go to bat for you. And it's really, really hard for women and minorities to find that because a lot of it is who do you see at a higher level within your organization? And if you don't see people who look like you, the less likely you are going to want to put yourself out there. Do you think that's a, like, I mean, let's be honest, the world is such a tricky place. Titans of industry control it. The school system is like that to become a cog in, in the big mm -hmm. machine. Do you know what I mean? And yep. if you are a minority and you are, you know, lower down, you just get squashed. Do you think that's what as well hard if some women do become successful? Not that they've got, a, I don't want to be judgmental and say they've got a scarcity mindset, but they're not as inclusive because they feel, well, look at how hard it was for me. I can't just give you the opportunity. So it's still very, do you know what I'm saying? I hate to say I, it. Absolutely. Like very, um, I know some, yeah, sorry, go, go. No, I was going to say that was actually very much so, particularly in the 90s. That was what we saw pretty, pretty often. Um, this company was started, actually, Elevate was started in the 90s, but why, by one of the first women promoted to partners at Goldman Sachs. And that's what they were seeing. They were seeing like there is a scarcity mindset. There are not enough seats at the table. There's this queen bee syndrome where there's the <laughs> one and the only. However, we've seen that changing a lot. And I will say the amount of support that we're seeing women give other women, we kind of learned the hard way, I have to say, that we're stronger together and stronger in numbers. And now I see that happening more and more where you, you see women referring other women all the time. You see women open the door for other women all the time and realizing that the the pie's not set, right? The pie can expand. And the bigger the pie, the bigger it is for everyone. One of the things I'm, I'm curious, and I want to go in the nuance of this, because I'm always thinking about from branding perspectives, why people do what they do. Um, when you think about Elevate, can you encapsulate what the mission really is? Like if you go into the core values, the thing that drive you, the mission statement, the purpose, because I really want to nail this home. Like I know what it is from the outside and doing the research prior, but for people listening right now who still maybe don't fully understand and resonate with what you are doing and creating, go into the nuance of it for us. Yeah, so if I were to state bluntly like what we do or, or what our mission is, is we want to create workplaces where everyone feels like they belong. And that's not just women, it's women and minorities um, and everyone really. How we see it. And the reason I say that as our mission is because I, when I started this job, I'm, yes, I want to get more women into leadership positions, but I want to do that because of what that means. It, women bring back to their community 90% of what they're, what they make. So the more you can get that, in, the more you can get money in the hands of women, the more you can get money into the community that they come from. So that's, again, like in, in, in a nutshell, we want to 
create places where people belong, but we can't do it alone. We have to have those connections. And if you see the history, um, the little old boys club still exists, has always existed. Oh, and that's what we know. created. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's yeah, well, I think it was created before we even came along. Let's be honest, right? We mm -hmm. live in a crazy world that's segregated like that. Do you feel there's a great book called The E-Myth Principle, which talks about the three, you know, there's the entrepreneur, there's someone that manages the idea, and then there's the person that's the worker, the tactician. I know mm -hmm. some people say it's a caste system and that's wrong, but not everyone's a born leader. Some people aren't born with the personality, the drive. Um, I naturally motivate myself. I lead myself. So do you, where is that fine line where someone, you know, that they're a little bit... Um, They've got blind spots, but they think they're a leader. And they're like, this, I never get a break. And you're like, yeah, but actually, you're not really born for, to be a leader. You need to be following people. So how do you manage that with people? Yeah. That's interesting. I think that I think about that a lot because when you think about <laughs> managers particularly, you are promoted to manager because you're good at your individual contributor job, which makes yes. no sense because to be a manager and to be a leader, you need extremely different skills. Right. And... I think that's where mentors and sponsors and actually having people that can tell you the truth. We usually call it our personal board of advisors, but people who can show you those blind spots and be like, eh, you know, maybe you're a really great engineer and you might want to just stay on that track over there because you might be able to do better. Um, I think that's that's really it. And it's, and it's interesting. I mean, I think about management a lot because, again, if we think about making a culture where people belong within businesses, it starts with managers. Okay. And yeah. if you can't get the right people into management, you have to build them up. And <laughs> I was listening to the stats the other day, and it's people get promoted to managers at the age of 35. They do not get management training until the age of 40. So there's five years where you're just basically doing whatever it is that you think is right without necessarily knowing what uh, the right steps are. <laughs> and it's not right. Mikey, you want to close it out? Yeah, I mean, that's that's so true. I mean, I, I'm so fortunate to have been able to make every leadership mistake you can imagine at like 20 years old. Uh, and so I, I definitely see that. You know, one of the things I want to touch base on here as, as a podcast host is the importance of knowing the the depth and scope of education that we can deliver to the world. Tell us about the Elevate podcast and what that role plays in your guys' mission. I know we've had the amazing um, absent David Meltzer on, um, but tell us a little bit about that and how that plays a role. Absolutely. Yeah, I uh, was lucky enough to get to interview David and we had a really fun conversation. The Elevate podcast for us is really about storytelling. It's about showcasing people who have made, like you said, you know, you were lucky enough to make all the leadership mistakes when you were 20. So if you can share those stories with other people so that they then don't make the same mistakes, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to showcase that there are many routes to success. There are many ways that success can be defined and, and seen. And the Elevate podcast is part of that. And can we share the stories of women who have been in your shoes? Amazing. And where can everyone find you? Um, the podcast, Apple, where, and what else? Wherever you, wherever you find your podcasts. Um, it's yep. the Elevate Podcast, Conversations with Women. Do you have any books coming out? Any books in the future? No, not yet, but it is. Uh, but what we do have coming up and I would love to share is our Mobilize Women Summit, which is going to be fully virtual, fully free. It's on June 7th. It's a full day event where we talk about 
a little bit of the more hard hitting topics that we don't necessarily cover day to day. So we're going to talk about gender equity and climate change. We're going to talk about the role of politics in business, um, the caregiving crisis, and a lot of other topics that are more nuanced. Um, and we want to make sure we have the platform to have those discussions. And, and where do people heard, find out about that? Yeah, ElevateNetwork.com slash summit. And social media, where they find you? I'm me, I'm on LinkedIn. That's where you'll actually see me, Maricela Herrera. Okay, perfect. I actually have someone, I'll, I'll send you a message. Uh, Tori, she's an author uh, and a, a lot of good women that you may want for your podcast. They're really great. Um, Kristen has a book out called The Comfort Zone that's doing really well. Hmm. Tori has a book out. Um, there's a few, uh, Emma Isaacs, I don't know if you know Emma. She's a really dear friend. She, there he is. Hey. He, <laughs> oh, they let me quick, in. Quick, they let quick, me in. Hide it. <laughs> Hi, David. Hi, they let me in. I was, you know, you thought I was hiding out because we have a little bit of a more tenuous conversation that people, especially white middle-aged men, don't like to engage in. So I, I was not hiding. They were hiding me. Uh, I landed late, but. Unexclusive. Just, we're just like, get him out of here. <laughs> Well, th thank you so much, and uh, I will be more than happy to promote and to help however I can as well. You were in good hands with the double mics on the mic, so uh, I'm sorry I missed most of it, but thank you. No, thank you for having me, and the mics were great. They are. <laughs> the mics do, do great, Mike. That's awesome. All right. Well, awesome. We'll see you soon. Come back. we got other shows, and I owe you one, so thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Awesome. Dave! Hi guys. What's up? You know, I've had a little bit of uh, flight karma uh, lately that hasn't been uh, a usual. So I got to figure out what I'm doing to interfere with the abundance of being on time in my flights or even landing in the right state. Uh, but uh, I, since I missed most of, of that, I'd love, uh, as we wait for our next guest, um, if you guys could give me a takeaway of the interview and we'll start there. What, what was great is you're talking about uh, being inclusive to women and ele elevating women, but also the politics of navigating a system and understanding that not everyone is a born leader and yeah. getting mentors and the right coaches. So you're giving people the right, you know, constructive criticism so they can grow and expand. What about you, Mike? Yeah, I mean, he, he kind of took exactly what I was going to say, and it's about giving people opportunity, not only just women, but being inclusive um, and creating diversity in, in a place where we know, Mike pointed to it, the, the boys club that is corporate and corporations in the, in the world and starting to make a, a chink in those armors of taking that down so that more people have access to opportunity. And I, I think it's one of the most powerful things that we have. And um, Scott is here with us now, David, by the way, he just popped up. Okay, good. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, just to add to that real briefly, like one of the great places to start uh, is just equal to pay. Uh, and so I think, you, you know, to keep it quantifiably, uh, you can't diminish skill, knowledge, desire. Uh, those are, you know, inherent in every employee at some level. Um, but equal pay is what I look at. And I let everyone's skill, knowledge, and desire uh, indicate, you know, what they're paid for. Uh, but each position is paid the same regardless of how tall you are, or how short you are. But all right, guys, introduce Scott, and let's get this party rolling. 
Mikey, you want to introduce Scotty? Yeah, Go. Scott, welcome, my friend. It's Scott Baradell. Uh, he is the author of his new book, Trust Signals. Uh, you can check out Scott. He's the CEO at ideagrove.com. Scott, what's up, my man? How are you today? Great. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, it's amazing to have you. Um, David, you wanna, what I'll do is I'll ask the first question. We'll kick yes, it over please. to you. Um, tell us, so you have the new book, Trust Signals, and it's about helping to prove people's trustworthiness, which I think is incredibly important. Uh, we live in a time where authenticity, integrity, and honesty are probably at all-time necessity. And so I'm wondering, what, what was the inspiration for the book, and what are you hoping to convey through it for people? Well, you know, um, I have a PR and marketing firm, and I get approached so many times by, by companies that say, we want more leads. We want more sales. And, and then, you know, if, if they, if they sign up for a company that just is getting them leads, they wonder why they can't convert any of them. And, and uh, it's typically because they haven't first established trust online, which is mm. another way of, of talking about brand building. But, you know, a lot of companies just think, Oh, I don't have time. I don't have the money to, to, to waste trying to build a brand. I need to just get sales. But if you build a brand, it makes everything so much easier after that. And, you know, it's like um, with salespeople. Uh, a lot of salespeople are the first ones who say, the only thing I want the marketing people to do is give me collateral, give me material, give me sales support. And I'm like, well, okay. And we can just make the website about that and everything else. But, you know, when you go sell, um, do you just talk about the product and ask for the sell? Oh, oh no, these are relationships I've built over years. That's why I'm such a good salesperson. Well, why don't you let the marketing team try to scale that online, try to scale that same idea of building relationships and trust before you start going for the sale. So that's the whole idea of the book is let's, before we start talking about selling, let's start talking about laying the foundation by building trust because no mm. one's gonna buy from you if they don't trust you first. Yeah, and to that measure, I think uh, people lose the sense of one of the powerful capabilities of uh, the internet and building an online uh, brand, and that's community. Um, and you can, it's so much easier to build a community because of the accessibility of a community online. And they confuse what building a brand is in the relationship capital that exists when you build a brand. Um, what are some of the tips that you do give though to build a community uh, online? So. Uh, when we when we look at that, uh, I think people misunderstand building a brand compared to building a community. Yeah, well, you know, what I try to do is is communicate. Here are ways to build credibility. I come from PR, and in PR, everything's about oh, I I want to get in the media. I want to be covered by the New York Times. Well, why? For brand awareness. Well. Uh, well, is it really for brand awareness? Because if you just want an awareness, these days you could just buy ads that follow people around everywhere and you'd have awareness. You'd annoy the hell out of people, but you'd have awareness. So what do you really want from a PR firm? You want the credibility that's bestowed on you by being in the New York Times. But less people read these publications. So what the book is really about is how to kind of navigate a much more complicated landscape in terms of information sources, sources of influence. So a brand can figure out how to build that community of people that share their values, that can connect with them beyond the product they sell. 
a great example since you come from the world of sports is Colin Kaepernick, right? Colin Kaepernick, when Nike signed on for this big uh, anniversary campaign a few years ago, very controversial, people burning their Nikes on Twitter and so forth, but it ended up making Nike a lot of money. And Nike didn't think twice about it because they had done their research. They knew their audience. It, now, would that have worked for Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby? Probably not. But it worked really well for Nike. So I'm just saying, whatever your brand is, don't just go by what the CEO thinks or what their politics are. Figure out the politics, values, social concerns of the people that you're trying to reach. Because these days, that's just as important as the features and benefits of your product in terms of who people, what brands people want to form a community around. So, Scott, I mean, being in the PR world, people get distracted because a lot of people buy their press these days. They're not authentic. It's all smoke and mirrors. How do you teach someone to, not, to trust their intuition and play the long game and realize that it takes time to build a brand? and to build a community. You can buy all the followers you want, you can buy all the press you want, but if people don't actually buy into who you are authentically, you know, it's just all smoke and mirrors. So how do you re-educate people to take their time and play the long game? Well, a lot of times they have to learn by failing and then, and then they're ready to try something else, to be honest, because it's just natural for a lot of, the truth is a lot of people who are just good at building businesses understand that relationships come first. It's often people, not the entrepreneurs so much, because I think most successful entrepreneurs get that and have an instinct for that going in or they wouldn't be successful. It's often a lot of people who are kind of put in these sales and marketing positions within a company and they think, oh, this is my job. I have to do this thing, as opposed to what are all the things leading up to getting there? But you know, big picture, the simplest thing I tell my clients is people, care a lot more and trust a lot more things people say about you than what you say about yourself. So let's worry a little less about finessing all the, the statements and all the BS you want to say. And let's focus on making your customers, making your community, making your employees, making them happy. So whether they're on review sites or Glassdoor or whatever, they're singing your praises authentically. That comes out. People can tell the difference, you know, tell the difference in a real person and chat GPT, right? In terms of what what people are saying. Once you've done that, and then what you should do, you don't talk about yourself even then. You you provide thought leadership. You talk about your vision for your industry. You talk about your social purpose. You talk about how you're trying to be part of making your community better. If you do that stuff, and then you let the other people say you're great at your product or your service, that's the perfect marriage. You know, for years on social media, it was just the opposite. It still is for a lot of companies where literally you, you watch a, a company social media feed and it'll be like watching TV and with, with commercials. It'll be like uh, a link to some trade media publication and this other thing and this other curated content. And then here's a, a, link, a link back to our website talking about our product. It's like here and now our commercial message. So it's like you're sharing other people saying smart things and you talking about yourself. So it should be the opposite. You say smart things and then let other people come in and say how great you are. That works a lot better. 
Scott, one of the things I'm curious about, you know, you've been able to build this to a, a top 25 PR company in the entire country. I mean, that's unbelievable. There's got to be thousands and thousands of PR companies. Talk to me because I'm, I'm very curious. Where does that trust level come into play that creates growth opportunities for you to be able to be a top 25? Like, what is it that you've seen transpire that has inspired trust organically in in the company and in the brand that people is it really just as simple as what you laid out are there more nuances there what i'm what i'm narrowing into is like how do you really start to capitalize on the trust factor in a company well i mean just to the extent idea grove has been successful i'm just look i'm not a natural salesperson i'm not like the most polished person to be honest i i'm just when i talk to prospects you know i'm just i when i get excited i just get naturally excited because i really am and sometimes it's about these boring b2b tech businesses that they think are boring but i find something i get excited about so i think i think honestly for me some maybe just being a little unpolished but genuine has, as i reflect back on it has actually kind of helped me um and, and in terms of who we hire we work really hard to build a culture that has just kind of real people who can, who are familiar with the book where they talk about how important to be the ultimate team player or being hungry, humble, and smart. And and we use that methodology in hiring. And so finding people who are humble, finding people who are willing to be themselves. And because they're humble, they don't have those barriers, ego barriers, which means you have less silos, which so many agencies and organizations have. And so I just think that authenticity within the organization, at least to things like within the agency, most agencies have a 25% uh, employee turnover rate per year. Ours for the last four years has been 5%. That's crazy. And I think it's because we focus so much. I mean, look, agencies are just people. You know, you might have some good processes and things you do a little different, but ultimately people hire you and stay with you because of the people. So if you get good people and get them to stay and they work well together, that's 90% of the battle. I gotta say, it took me a long time, a lot of trial and error and a lot of heartache to finally get to the point where we've got these, this kind of employee retention, but that leads directly to um, client retention too. Yeah, Scott, you know, I wanna back up the truck a little bit when you were talking about, you know, the opinions of others and there's varying schools of thought on uh, good opinions of you and bad opinions of you I've been in PR marketing for over three decades, and especially in the sports and entertainment world, you know, people would say any news is good news for you and being able to raise the awareness to you. And I was just with Gary Vaynerchuk and we were talking about Glassdoor specifically and uh, how he loves, you know, negative reviews on Glassdoor because anyone that would believe that, you know, he wouldn't want them to apply. Anyone that's dumb enough to believe uh, a post, uh, a, re a review like that uh, on Glassdoor, he's just saving himself time. I personally, you know, tell a story about my first book review from Goodreads, you know, a famous book reviewer said that my book was stupid because you could talk to water. And I, I, I stated from other material that you could change uh, the cellular structure of water by speaking to it either nicely or harshly. Uh, and it was the best thing that ever happened in my book because it kept all the people that were naturally going to hate my book from buying it. And those who thought 
the review person was an idiot for saying that went out and defended me by buying the book because it became interesting to them. How do you feel about the veracity and credibility of negative uh, reviews or commentary as far as raising the awareness and being any PR is good PR? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think in your case, it helped that that review was by a notable reviewer, right? So people already had opinions about that person. Some didn't like them, some did. And so the people who didn't like them were probably more likely to say, this guy, I never agreed with this person anyway. Let me check out this book. It's like um, my favorite my favorite review movie review ever was the reviewer uh, Pauline Kale, who uh, wrote um, about Brian De Palma, the director. Uh, Brian De Palma has style to burn, and that's exactly what he should do with it. And, uh, which is always I thought it was one of the greatest slides ever. But you know what? It, it really didn't hurt Brian De Palma's career very much, I don't think. So I think that um, there is something to be said for having big, notable people just paying attention to you and elevating you, whether they disagree with you or not, to get someone to come in and form their own opinions. Because the most notable media sources and sources of influence today there, there's no one who's universally loved, right? There, I mean, just about it's yeah, like I, oh, I got, New York, you, New York Times, Fox News. Yeah, I, I got to tell you that because when people say that, right, no one's universally loved. I always tell people, you know, somebody killed Gandhi. <laughs> like somebody actually hated him so much that they killed Gandhi. And if you could hate Gandhi that much, imagine how someone could feel about Mike, Mike, and I. <laughs> This is true. But I was another thing I'd say quickly about reviews is that your the truth is people don't trust when uh, the reviews are all five star. They just yeah. there's something fishy because nobody's perfect. So the data I've actually there's stuff a lot of stuff in the uh, about reviews in the book and I've done a lot of research on it and I can tell you that if if you're if you're in that 4 to 4.5 range in terms of your reviews it's actually going to help your business more in general. And particularly if you have first party reviews, like you let people leave reviews on your site, if they're five star, people don't pay any attention to them. It, it, it creates no positive influence whatsoever because people just assume they're rigged. I mean, a lot of people already know that 30% plus of Amazon reviews are fake, paid for. Um, there's a, a guy I know uh, who's, who has a business that is now working with like, local and state governments, uh, FTC and others on fake reviews of Google. And he, Google claims only 5% of Google reviews are fake, but he says his research uh, shows that it's more like 30%. So, you know, there's already so much skepticism in the society in general. And so, you know, even things like a review from uh, someone that's got their name on it, People don't know whether to trust them today. So um, they they have to make their judgments about, hmm, okay, this is fishy. It's too, these reviews are too good. Or if they're, if they're really bad, okay, that's, but what's, what's, what, where, where's the, the kind of point at which I feel like that sounds right? You know, that sounds like I can believe it. And, and so much Scott. of that is like you said, Scott, about trust. Um, tell us where can we find you and the new book? Well, um, ideagrove.com uh, is the address for uh, uh, website for my agency uh, for, for PR and marketing services. Trustsignals.com is a website where I've actually put all of the content from the book, all the uh, audiobook chapters, all of the, the all of the chapters of the book in writing as well. There, it's all available for free on the website. So if you don't want to go 
it's just chapter by chapter, so you're gonna have to read them or listen to them that way. But you don't have to pay for it if you don't want. I just want people to kind of get this content and and learn from it, hopefully, and, and have some value for people. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it so much. We'll have you back. Great transparency, great advice. Read the book, check it out. We're looking for people that give us the truth. And you certainly have delivered that today with great value. Uh, look forward to having you back. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Take care, guys. Awesome. Good job, Scott. Thank you. All right. I have no idea if I can't see too much here. So I'm hoping. Oh, he's there. Uh, I'm going to. It's so good with. Uh, you're such a good MC, uh, Michael. I'm broken. And, uh, and plus, with the tri tri triad that we have here, Mike Diamond looks super serious today, which is not what the idea of Wednesdays are. Wednesdays are wacky Wednesdays. But go ahead and give a wacky intro to the wacky Wednesday. It's not rocket science over here at Office Hours. <laughs> That's hilarious. Ozon, Ozon Verol, you are a rocket science turned award-winning law professor and bestseller. I never thought, if you asked me, when you asked me to do this, if we'd ever talk to a rocket scientist, my answer would be like, probably not. And yet here we are promoting your brand new book, Awake Your Genius. I assume you would have to be a genius to be a rocket scientist. So why don't we start there? How, how did you make this transition? And what is Awaken Your Genius about? Welcome to Office Hours, Ozon. Thank you for having me on. Great to see you again, David. So actually, you know, the way the, the way that I use the term genius in the book title, it was very purposeful and I don't use it to mean the most talented or the most intelligent. Uh, genius uh, in a quote by Thelonious Monk, uh, he says, a genius is the one most like himself. And genius in the Latin origin of the word actually refers to the spirit attendant at birth in each and every person. So each of us is like Aladdin and our genie or our genius is bottled up inside of us waiting to be awakened. And so I wanted to write a book on on how to do that and how to escape the culture of conformity, uh, both in our personal and professional lives. Where we're just sort of like look around the world and copy and paste what other people and other businesses are doing. So life becomes this race to the center, but the center is just too crowded with other people trying to do the same thing. And so discovering your own genius uh, becomes a key to also becoming extraordinary. Because if you think about it, no one can compete with you at being you. You're the first and the last time that you'll ever happen. So if your thinking is an extension of you, if what you're building is a product of your own genius, then you'll be in a league of your own. But if you suppress yourself, if you copy and conform, then that wisdom, that genius is going to be lost both to you and to the rest of the world. No. Ozan, you're also academically achieved, and uh, I have a real difficult time coming from the family that I come from, from over-accelerated academic achievers, and uh, myself being uh, at least participating in academics at a high level, uh, that people will attribute genius or intelligence with academic achievement. Um, and so I was hoping, relative to awakening your genius, and I was always told that genius was the expression of God, which I think is uh, also aligned with your definition as you talk about that inspiration and intuition that is included with intellect. But how do you reconcile uh, academic achievement? Uh, because it seems as if a lot of people who are labeled geniuses have great academic achievement. Yeah, not, not necessarily. I mean, there are certainly some geniuses that have achieved academically, but then there are counterexamples like Albert Einstein probably being the most notable of them. 
who was not great, right, academically. I mean, Carl Sagan hated calculus when he was in school. Um, so I don't equate academic achievement with genius for that reason. Um, and it, you know, it also because I think the education system is all about conformity, right? Like it's all about learning, memorizing someone else's answers to someone else's questions and then spit, spitting them back out on a standardized test somewhere. And, and by the way, coming, this is coming from me. I graduated number one in my law school class, which is actually embarrassing to share because it means one thing only. I was really good at conforming. I was right. really good at like trying to figure out what my teachers wanted. If they said, go read this book, I would go read that book, right? Like that's how I got ahead. Uh, but academic achievement often means you're really good at conforming. And so, um, and unfortunately, you know, if, if the education system was designed differently, if it wasn't so geared towards here's a list of things that you need to memorize and here's a standardized test and let's just pretend all of this is important um that it might be different but the way that education currently works yeah genius isn't genius and academic achievement are not one and the same so do you think that a real genius is someone that can understand the system break the rules follow themselves authentically see patterns and then be a great innovator yeah, I do. Um, and one of the great examples that I talk about in my book, Awaken Your Genius, is Johnny Cash. So Johnny Cash in 1954, he's a nobody. He is selling appliances door to door. He's singing gospel songs at night with two of his friends. He's broke. His marriage is in ruins. And he has this audition at Sun Label Records, right? And so he walks into the, to the audition room to audition and he picks a gospel song because that's what he knew best. And in 1954, gospel was all, all the rage. Um, so as he begins to sing this dreary gospel song, the record label owner, Sam Phillips, pretends to be interested for about 20 seconds before interrupting Cash. He says, we already heard that song. Just like that. Just like how you sang it. He says, this is the same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day about your peace within and how it's real and how you're going to shout it. He looks at Cash and he says, sing something different. Sing something you felt. Sing something uh, real, because that's the kind of song that people want to hear. That's the kind of song that truly saves people. And uh, that rant jolts Cash out of its conformist, let me sing you some good old gospel attitude. He collects himself. He starts, starts strumming his guitar and he starts playing the Folsom Prison Blues in that deep, distinctive voice of his. And in that moment, he stops trying to become a gospel singer and he, he becomes Johnny Cash all because he rejects the instinct to conform and he goes back to himself, right? What makes him different, what makes him real and, and, and starts singing the Paulson prison blues and walks out of the audition room with a contract because he rejects that tendency to conform and embraces the genius within him. That's a phenomenal story. I'm a huge fan of, of Johnny Cash. And that's one of the things I think about quite frequently um, when it comes to just being yourself. But, you know, you said something so fascinating to me. And this never clicked in my life until you just said this, that you were number one because you were the best conformer. So many people step into that. They're like, I have to be the best, but they don't understand that they're sacrificing part of who they are in order to become the best instead of pushing against the grain and escaping the matrix and becoming who it is that they're capable of becoming. And I know one of the things you talk about in Awaken Your Genius is this idea about the unconventional ways that you've been able yourself to create changes in your life. 
would love to know what some of those things are so we can help some of the people who are listening and watching right now be able to start to make some of those changes. So I think people just feel so stuck because it's what you know and that identity shift is arguably the scariest thing that we do. For sure. I think one of the one of the really important things is growing comfortable with uncertainty. So uncertainty is really scary to a lot of people. Um, and I remember, so I've, I've had so many transformations in my life. The, the one example that popped to mind where I took a leap into uncertainty, when it was really scary to do it, I was 17 years old. Uh, I grew up in Istanbul, Turkey, in a family of no English speakers, learning English as a second language. And my dream growing up was to work on a space mission one day. Carl Sagan was my childhood hero. Uh, so uh, at 17, I got admitted to study astrophysics at Cornell University. And, um, you know, I remember the admission coming in and I went online and immediately started to research what the astronomy department at Cornell was up to. And I found out that one of the professors was in charge of this NASA led mission to Mars. Uh, and he had been a graduate student of Carl Sagan, who was a childhood hero of mine. And so this was like stars aligned too good to be true. I wrote him an email expressing my burning desire to work for him, attached my resume. And just when I thought about clicking send, this chorus of voices filled my head. Um, the voices being, you're a skinny kid with a funny name from a country halfway around the world. What could you possibly contribute, right? There is no job posting. Why would you apply for a job that doesn't exist? Um, you're no good. Like the, the, the voices of doubt came in overwhelmingly. And I almost did not send the email. Um, and then I, I remember closing my eyes, I took a deep breath and I asked myself, where are these voices coming from? Like, are these voices actually me? And the answer was no. I had picked up all of those statements that I just shared with you. None of them were mine. I just picked them up from the culture that I lived in, from my, what my teachers had told me, what my classmates had told me. And I asked myself, what do I really think? And the answer was, oh, there was no doubt click send on the email. I clicked send. And a week later, I got an email back from the professor. He invited me in for an interview. When I arrived at Cornell, I ended up interviewing him, got a job, work on, I, I got to work on the operations team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers mission. And then went on to write Think Like a Rocket Scientist, which became a big bestseller in 2020. I would not be sitting here talking to you right now if that 17 year old had not clicked send on that email. Um, and so I, I still have voices of doubt in my head. I still fear uncertainty. Whenever I, I, I have that fear creep in, I think back to that moment when I was 17 and I click send. And I share that story to also invite the listeners who are, who are tuning in right now to think back to a moment like that in their life and keep that top of mind. A, a moment where they felt they didn't feel quite good enough or they felt scared to take a leap into the unknown but they did the thing anyway, and amazing things resulted. We all have moments like that in our life. And actually, the best moments in your life tend not to be scripted and carefully like planned. They tend to be moments where you like did something outside of your comfort zone. You leaned into uncertainty, and amazing things resulted as a, as a result. And so I, I, I have that anchor moment in my life of when I was 17. So I invite people, and this is something I talk about in, in Awaken Your Genius as well, to anchor into their click send moment and keep that top of mind when they fear transformation. 
and in the art of being a genius and in the awakening of your genius, I think it would be interesting to see your perception of conformity plus, meaning conformity and, because uh, you cannot just be a conformist and really good at being a conformist to be number one at something. And so I think there is an element of applying your why, applying your genius within the context or framework of conformity in order to, especially from zero to one, maybe not necessarily one to a hundred, uh, but there is a resistance uh, without conformity to be able to have opportunity. Uh, how do you reconcile that idea of conformity plus or conformity and in order to facilitate awakening your genius by getting more options, opportunities and touches of favor without completely bucking the trend? Sure. I think when you're starting out, you have to get to know the rules and getting to know the rules often requires conforming, at least to begin with. But then I think you need to uh, so many people then get stuck in that mode of like, I've now entered the system. I've learned the rules of the system. I'm going to obey the rules. And then they get stuck on autopilot and they never snap out of it. Right. Yeah. So I think it's being cognizant of and being intentional about what you're doing and and why you're doing it. And then once you're in the system, once you figured out the rules very quickly, trying to lean on your own strengths. The, the musician Brian Eno calls us like a lot of people try to aim at the most obvious target. Um, and, you know, be, because it's the most obvious target, it's the biggest target. Everyone else is aiming at the same target, which makes it really hard to hit. And so he says, shoot the arrow and then paint the target around it. Like, Create the niches in which you finally reside. And Johnny Cash is a great example of this. Um, but I think, yeah, you do need to know the rules. and But very quickly, you have to figure out your own niche and become the, the, the only. Uh, becoming the best at something becomes hard, but becoming the only is easier. That's super powerful, my friend. Ozan, thank you for being here on Office Hours with us. Tell everybody where they can find you and learn more about your brand new book, Awaken Your Genius. Yeah, Awaken Your Genius, available wherever books are sold. If you go to geniusbook.net, I have a uh, free bonus for buying the book. It's a short video course with 10 life-changing insights from the book that you can watch in less than 30 minutes and apply those insights in your life right away. And then if you'd like to keep in touch with me, I have a uh, an email list, an email that goes out to over 50,000 people every Thursday. And you can sign up for that by heading over to my website, ozanvarol.com. Readers call it the one email I actually look forward to every week. That's awesome. Thank you, Osan. We'll have you back on Incredible Genius, Incredible Guest. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. All right. Uh, Mikey, what do you see there? We have our last guest. Or are we ready to? Oh, yep. Good. There. Oh, guests, plural. The two A's are here. Andrea yes. and Alton, how are you? We're terrific. Very well, thank you. How about yourself? They call him Andy and Al, uh, Mikey and Mike. So uh, why don't we introduce our friends, uh, Andy and Al. They're also authors of Beyond Bias, The Path to End Gender Inequality. So we started with one bookend and we'll finish with the other. Absolutely amazing, guys. Welcome. Thank you so much for being at Office Hours. Um, let's just dive right in. So this new book of yours, Beyond Bias, The Path to Gender Equality at Work, give us the framework and the why and the importance of a book like this, especially in the time and the space that we live in right now in 2023. 
Well, this is the third book that Al and I have done together about um, uh, gender bias. And the first two of them focused on what women could do in gender biased workplaces. You know, how do we navigate around what we're dealt? And uh, we decided in this book that we really thought it was about time that we put the uh, burden, if you will, on the organizations and address the type of systemic bias that makes it so that um, women have a difficult time succeeding at work and and um, people of color as well. So it really can apply across that. But we had to declare our team and we've been talking about gender bias for the last 30 years. So we stuck with it. Yeah, go I with what, to, sorry. oh, sorry, Mikey. Yeah, no, no, you pop back here. in. Be careful. Oh, yeah. Mobile Melter's back. Be careful, Mikey, Mikey. And I said, we go with what we know. Um, and look, uh, you guys are seasoned veterans. And so you've seen an evolution. You're not uh, someone standing on a pedestal with two years of experience, uh, two years of experience uh, talking as if they're experts in the space. Uh, let's talk about that evolution with the series of books that you've had. What advancements, you know, we always talk about, there's always more to go, you know, the white middle-aged men like Al and I, we got a lot to unlearn, but we have made progress. And I'm not saying settle for the progress, but what progress have we made in a positive direction that you see promising for the future? Well, one of the things that we look back historically, um, depending on the how long a view we take, we've made enormous progress. If we go back as far as uh, the passage of the Voting Rights Act, uh, the, the 19th Amendment, from then till now, the change for women has been enormous. On the other hand, if we start in the 90s and look at where we were then and where we are now, the change has been minuscule. And that's one of the things that really drove us to think we've got to come up with a new approach. Whatever organizations have been doing since about 1995 hasn't worked. We're stalled. And we need to break out of that sense that we know what to do. We've got to try something different. Your last guest was talking about conformity. Well, most organizations right now are conforming to a model of gender training that relies on seeking to make people more aware of their biases and thereby to be more inclusive, less biased, uh, more gender neutral. Well, it ain't working. And so what this book is about is breaking out of that status quo and moving on to something that really can work. I mean, Annie, now, do you think in a way, I mean, I know you're being positive saying that we have moved forward, but in some areas we've regressed, haven't we? Because we're still having conversations about things that come on, like really like just some of the stuff that goes on. It's like, we really still have any, how have we not, with all the information, we can see things are all over the place. Do you know what I mean? So do you think that in some areas we just, we've actually gone way back? 
Yes. Well, all you have to do is look at sexual harassment. We've gone way back. You have to look at the tech sector and women entering uh, technology. We've gone back. We're making little progress in all of the STEM fields. Uh, and in terms of uh, the leadership of most major organizations, we we made a little progress, but we're not we're not getting there. What one of my favorite one of my favorites is that there are more CEOs named John than there of a Fortune 100 companies or Fortune 50 companies than there are women who are CEOs of those same companies. So um, it hasn't changed. And, and and part of it we is we take it apart in our book before we um, uh, dive into sort of what we're recommending needs to be done differently. Um, part of it is that people are, um, if we just say to people, you said information that, you know, we have all this information, why do we still have this problem? Well, as Al was saying about the, the bias training programs, anti-bias training programs not working, if you say to somebody, here's an unconscious bias, don't be biased. Well, you, you can't, it, it, nothing's going to change. And so instead of talking about what people need to do differently, organizations need to step up and be responsible for making the change. And the way that the organizations can make the changes is that if they can, for example, just get rid of some of the discretion, some of the ability for people to let their biases affect their decision making, if it's made harder or, or, or impossible for them to do that, then miraculously it's going to be a more uh, a, a, an environment that 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 is more fair. And also, if people see that that's what is supposed to be the way it goes, then miraculously, then people buy into it as well. One of the things Andy and I, I think about a lot as a leader, as an entrepreneur, as someone who employs multiple people across all dominions is how do I be more aware of these possibly subconscious biases and more importantly, the ones that are overt and covert. Like you, you speak about biases, like what are those as leaders and as organizations we should be looking out for and that we should be aware of? Well, it's not so much that as a leader of the organization, you need to be aware of those biases as that you need to be aware of how your organization's structures, systems, and practices have built into them systemic discriminatory impulses. That is, one of the things that we try to dive into very deeply is what are your decision-making processes? How do you make personnel decisions? And we identify seven ways in which you can change the way you make personnel decisions to make those decisions resistant to the biases of the leaders, of the managers. So rather than focusing on making the managers and the leaders aware of their biases, we focus on making changes to systems that don't allow those biases to be manifested. 
and and let me just add to that, um, uh, Mike, because I think um, your 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 point's an important one. What are the biases? Well, there's affinity bias, which is we like to hang around with people who are like us. We're just comfortable with people who are like us. So senior men like to hang around with junior men. And so the women are left out. The people of color are left out when the senior men happen to be white men. Um, the uh, gender bias, the expectation that somehow women are not as good at um, managing business or, or being an entrepreneur um, as men are, uh, a bias that we call the outgroup bias, which is, well, if you're not in my group, then there's something wrong with you. My group's better. And then the last one we kind of alluded to, status quo bias, which is really the fact that people are afraid of change, that we're more comfortable in even we're even more comfortable in a situation where we know it's not very good for us, but it's very hard for us to make a move because we're afraid of change. And so when you put those four biases together, those are the ones that tend to influence all of the decisions that affect um, the advancement of women and people of color. And so what we need to do is, as Al said, get rid of the subjective aspects of the decision-making process. I'll give you one example. Um, in, um, in my career, uh, uh, I'm a lawyer, and um, in um, the last law firm that I was at, um, what we found was that the men, the senior men, were evaluating the women and the men differently. So the exact same behavior was excused or accepted in a guy and was criticized in a woman. And so what we found is that if we just took away the fill-in-the-blank open-ended questions and instead said to people, how does this person compare or handle this particular core competency or this job or this responsibility? And miraculously, once they weren't able to say he's a go-getter and she's a pain in the butt, um, uh, they ended up scoring a lot closer together. And so, so I think that's just a, one little example about the kinds of things that can happen in an environment where you're just not allowing people's bias to kick in. Don't be biased hasn't worked in the past, not, not, notwithstanding the billions of dollars that organizations are paying uh, to have sessions, don't be biased. Yeah, absolutely. That makes and, so much Andy, sense. Andy, you and I are equals because we're only lawyers. We're not rocket scientists and lawyers like our last guest. So uh, right. we're, we're on this similar footing. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, let's uh, get all the information for Andy and Al. And we certainly appreciate having you guys on. It's a very important topic. It, for me, the biggest one is because I'm an entrepreneur, you know, less than 2% now uh, of women and people of color are funded. Uh, for their businesses, although almost 70% of the earth is women and people of color. Uh, that is a huge discrepancy, which will have long-term effect on uh, equality in general, let alone gender equality. So I want to raise that issue real quickly, but we will have you both back on. It's like 
when Harry met Sally equals gender equality. You guys are the cutest couple and so much credibility experience. I just, uh, I miss my grandparents and my parents looking at you both together. We can feel the genuine authenticity of both of you and the concern that you have for equality. Go ahead, close it out, Mikey. Yeah, thank you guys so much for being here. Guy, tell us again where we can find the book and learn more about you. Okay, well, our newest book is Beyond Bias, and you could get it at Amazon or any of the any of the booksellers you want to find. They can get it for you. Um, and our other books as well are on Amazon. Um, it launched uh, uh, last week, so it's uh, brand new, hot off the presses, and um our website is um, andyandale.com, and that's A-N-D-I-E, because I spell my name weird, and A-N-D-A-L-A-L. Um, and um, we have blogs and other sorts of um, uh, resources that might be of interest to, to some of you. And you Amazing. can write us there at that website, and we answer Thank every you. email we get. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you guys so, so much for being here. Thank you. So do we. Thank you. We'll have you back. Thank you. Okay, All right, gentlemen. We are Wacky Wednesday got serious here, so we're going to have to regroup for next week. I apologize, and thank you for your patience. My wife is waiting me, so we'll take the earlier takeaways as the late takeaways. I am blessed to have the double mics on the mic to cover for me and join me on Wacky Wednesdays of Office Hours. I hope to see you soon. Don't forget my diamond fuel, Mikey. In the, it's, in the, uh, it's in It's in the... Uh... The mail. It's in the mail. Checks in the yep. mail, Mike. I'm broken. Dose of positivity, both of you. I'm going to pick up a couch for my mom. I love you both. <laughs> Take care. All right. <laughs> be, more, <laughs> be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.